So over the last few weeks, we've been reading from the Gospel of Luke, and particularly the last, uh, the few chapters where Jesus is approaching his last days, um, his last few weeks of life in Jerusalem. And today we're going to be reading about his last few days of his life. Now the festival of unleavened bread, called the Passover, was approaching, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Jesus went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? They asked. He replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, The teacher asks, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred on one on me so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, am I ready to go with you to prison and to death? Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. When Jesus asked them, 
when I sent when I sent you without purse, bag or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, but now if you have a purse, take it and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It is written. And he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yet what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. The disciple said, see, Lord, here are two swords. That's enough, Jesus, he replied. Thank you, Juliet. G'day, everyone. Lovely to see you. I'm missing my wife. Um, I just noticed my hair looks all scruffy. That's because my wife wasn't with me this morning. So (laughs) apologies about that, uh, but I appreciate uh, her for many, many things. Um, So uh, I want to take you to the first uh, scene of The Lord of the Rings. Uh, If you haven't watched it by now, I don't know what you've been doing for the last 20 years uh, or so. Uh, But The Lord of the Rings begins, it's set in the Shire, and you have the, the very ordinary life of these hobbits. Uh, and it's a, it's a life of fun and friendship and gossip, mischief, romance, just very ordinary life. But these four hobbits set off on an adventure. And as they set off, little do they know the fierce and terrifying enemies that await them in the journey ahead. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, you too have set out on a journey. He calls each one of us to follow. And yes, there are enemies that you will face along the way, uh, but many of the enemies are not so obviously evil uh, as what you see in the Lord of the Rings, Uh, not as visibly in your face. And yet God wants us to know that following Jesus, you have entered a supernatural battle and there are fierce and terrifying enemies. Just let me uh, show you one passage, one letter to a church in the New Testament. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That is the, the journey Uh, that lies ahead of us that we're already engaged in and this is why we need God's word because what God's word does is it reveals things that are hidden Uh, it reveals hidden realities supernatural realities and what God's word does it doesn't do that to scare us but to equip us for the journey ahead and also to give us great confidence And Satan wants nothing more than to rob us of the confidence that is ours through the Lord Jesus. So three headings today, Satan at work, and I can't remember what the two other headings are, but you'll hear them uh, as they come. So Satan at work. At the start of this passage, so we're in Luke chapter 22 that Juliet just read. And notice at the start, verse 3, then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the 12. Satan has come back on the scene in the midst of them. Now, you might remember if you've been following the journey of Jesus, uh, right back in chapter 4, as Jesus was about to embark on his ministry, before his public ministry began, 
Remember the Holy Spirit came on Jesus. He was led into the wilderness for 40 days, kind of like almost like going through the history of Israel again and their time in the wilderness. So Jesus is 40 days in the wilderness without food, hungry, tired, alone, exhausted. And that's when Satan comes and tempts him. And at the heart of Satan's temptation is the temptation that Jesus could have the glory without the suffering. He could have the crown without the cross. Uh, And that was Satan's temptation. And each time a temptation comes, Jesus digs deep into the word of God and replies uh, and resists Satan's tempting. But we're told at the end of Luke chapter 4 that when the devil had finished all this tempting... He left until an opportune time came. See what's going on? Satan has started, he's active, he's going to come against Jesus, but he's waiting for the right time. And as you keep reading Luke's gospel, you see these little skirmishes where Jesus casts out demons. He's clearly engaged in supernatural battle, but I take it the big battle is still lying in the future. But now on the night before Jesus dies, now the opportune time has come. This is where Satan will launch his full-scale assault on Jesus. And it begins, as we heard, with Satan entering Judas. One of the 12 uh, has been turned to the side of Satan. Now, we don't know Judas's motive in full. We know at least there's a greed dynamic going on. He, he was a greedy man. I wonder whether there's also a sense of perhaps disillusionment or a sense of disappointment at the persecution. He followed Jesus, but now it's put him at odds with so many of the religious elite. But for whatever reason... Verse 4, Judas went to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard, and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted, and they agreed to give him money. He consented, and he watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. There's going to be a stealth attack on Jesus Judas is involved by betraying Jesus. He will hand him over at the right time. The religious leaders are caught up in it. Now, does Judas realise that he has become an agent of Satan at this point? I take it no. Uh, I take it he is oblivious to the bigger warfare that is taking place. Did the religious leaders know they were allied to Satan? Again, I take it, no. Uh, They would have been horrified at the charge that they were operating as agents of Satan. But at the end of this chapter, when the religious leaders come to arrest Jesus by force, listen to what Jesus says. This is at night under the cover of darkness. Am I leading a rebellion that you've come with swords and clubs? I think I might have the quote here. Yeah, am I leading a rebellion that you've come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts and you didn't lay a hand on me, but this is your hour when darkness reigns. 
And when Jesus talks about darkness, he's not just talking about a lack of light, but that, that evil, the reign of darkness. Now, brothers and sisters, God wants us to know that we are engaged in a spiritual battle. And it doesn't look like it. It kind of doesn't feel like it. Sometimes we feel it. Sometimes we feel evil pressing in on us. But sometimes we just go about our ordinary lives kind of oblivious to these bigger realities, this war that is being waged around us. We're, in, we're engaged in a supernatural battle whether we like it or not. Because Satan has declared war on God. God is the rightful creator and ruler of our world. And Satan has set himself to destroy God, to overthrow God, to, to establish his kingdom. And we will ally ourselves either to Satan and his evil intentions or we will ally ourselves to God and his kingdom and his son and his people. But as we read on, one thing becomes very clear. This is a battle that God wins. And Jesus will be the champion. Jesus will be the hero. It is a battle that is certain because of the work of Jesus uh, in the chapters ahead. Uh, you know how you, get, you hear that phrase, don't get caught on the wrong side of history? We hear it a lot, you know, in the culture wars that are going on and people say, oh, make sure you don't get caught on the wrong side of history. Well, let me tell you, don't get caught on the wrong side of this battle. Right? You, you are, all of us unwittingly are engaged in a supernatural battle and we will either ally ourselves to Satan or to God. There is no kind of middle ground in this battle. So heading to the Passover meal. Now how strange it is that in the midst of this supernatural battle that is raging, that is kind of reaching its climax and the reign of darkness has come, how strange that Jesus arranges a meal with his disciples. You think, wow, this is some sort of pause before the action. So chapter, 20, chapter 22, verse 1. Now the festival of unleavened bread called the Passover was approaching. Verse 7, then came the day of the unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. So you could be tempted to think this is a, a little bit of a, a distraction, an unnecessary pause before the real action to come. And yet Jesus is meticulous about these preparations. Just Jesus is fixated on this Passover meal. Verse 14, when the hour came... Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, 
I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. Something about this meal was incredibly significant to Jesus. Uh, He's been eager to eat this meal with them before he suffers because there's something about this meal that is about to be fulfilled in the hours that will follow. So, let's get a brief background on the Passover meal. Uh, will you do a little bit of chasing back into the Old Testament? This will be fun because there'll be lots of, not, uh, lots of pictures. You see, way back in 1500 BC, the people of Israel were living as slaves in Egypt. This is 1500 years before the Lord Jesus comes. God raises up Moses and sends him to Pharaoh. Pharaoh is the most powerful man on the planet, the Egyptian uh, ruler. And God says through the lips of Moses, let my people go so they can worship me. Let my people go, release my people from slavery. And Pharaoh refuses. So God sent plagues on Egypt, flies and gnats. God kept insisting, but Pharaoh kept refusing. Uh, Until we come to the last plague, and that is the destroying angel will sweep through Egypt on one dreadful night and will kill the firstborn sons in every household. God said, Israel is my firstborn son and I want you to let my firstborn son and if not, I will take your firstborn sons. And on that terrible night, so many of the children of of Egypt die under the judgment of God But on that night, the the Israelites were commanded to take an unblemished lamb and to slaughter the lamb and paint the blood of that lamb on the door frames of their houses. The death of the lamb was a substitute for the firstborn sons in each of those houses. And so on the night the angel of death swept through the land of Egypt... He passed over. He passed over every household of the people of Israel because they had the blood of the lamb painted on their door frames. And so the Egyptians mourn the loss of their firstborn sons and Pharaoh says, get out, leave. Uh, And he expels the people of Israel from Egypt. They escape they pass through the Red Sea. Remember, the Red Sea waters pass part. They walk through on dry ground. And then the Egyptian armies, Pharaoh is just so irrational in his opposition that he chases after. Uh, but the horse and rider are thrown into the sea. Pharaoh and his armies are engulfed uh, in the waters. And uh, that was a song that the Israelites would sing You know, I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and rider thrown into the sea. Now, I just want to point out, what a surprising victory. Um, Pharaoh, the most powerful man on the planet, humiliated by the God of Israel, 
and not a single weapon is raised in opposition to him. Do you notice that? Um, the only thing remotely like a weapon used was the knife that was used to kill the lamb in each of the households of Israel. But no weapon was raised in opposition and yet God brought about the most incredible victory and the humiliation of Pharaoh. And Moses commanded the people that they should celebrate that great rescue. Uh, they should celebrate that surprising victory every year. And what they'd do every year was reenact that Passover meal. Uh, they would kill a lamb. Uh, they would eat the roast lamb in remembrance of the lamb uh, whose blood was shed and painted on the door frames. They'd eat unleavened bread because they left in haste and they were leaving the yeast of Egypt behind. They would eat, they'd drink wine together. And all of it, the whole meal, was a meal of remembrance. What a great victory. What a great rescue God had brought his people. Now, this is the meal that Jesus is so eager to eat and to celebrate with his disciples. Notice that verse at the bottom again. I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. Now, that's such a strange thing to say. I wonder whether the disciples recognize just how strange it is. They'd eaten this meal for 1,500 years. Every year, they would look back to Egypt. But now Jesus says this meal is about to find its fulfillment in God's kingdom. Verse 17. So this is chapter 22 of Luke, verse 17. After taking the cup, Jesus gave thanks. And he said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. See, Jesus knows the kingdom of God is about to break in, in power, uh, in the hours that lie ahead, in his death, resurrection and ascension. That would be the kind of inauguration, the launch, the coronation of God's kingdom. So next time Jesus drinks wine, it will be as king over God's kingdom. Verse 19, Jesus took bread, gave thanks and he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Can you see Jesus is transforming this meal? Uh, no longer remember back to Egypt, but when you eat this bread, remember my body given for you. Uh, my body will be given in rescue of God's people. And verse 20, in the same way after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Just a couple of really key references in the Old Testament. Isaiah 53, God had prophesied 700 years before Jesus, God had prophesied a man who would come as a Passover sacrifice, as a lamb who would be slaughtered. And God would lay our sin on him and he would take the guilt 
and the punishment uh, that we deserve. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, but he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Jesus knew his death would be as the perfect Passover lamb, the fulfilment of all the Old Testament had been looking forward to. He would bring complete forgiveness of sins. And so that's what Jeremiah 31 talks about. 550 years before Jesus, God prophesied and he said, I'll make a new covenant. Right? God made a covenant with the people of Israel as they came out of Egypt. That's the old covenant. And God says, I'm going to make a new covenant. And part of this new covenant is complete forgiveness. I'll remember their wickedness. So I'll forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. As far as the east is from the west, God will remove our sin from us. Now, what has all this got to do with this supernatural war that Satan is waging against God? What's it all got to do with it? Well, the answer is, Everything, right? Everything. It has everything to do. Jesus' sacrificial death is like the central battle. It is the turning point. It is the the climax of the warfare between God and Satan. Just listen to how the rest of the New Testament describes Jesus' death. This is Hebrews 2. Since the children have flesh and blood... Jesus too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of Satan, the power of him who holds the power over death, that is the devil, and he might free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Jesus' death releases us from the grip and the control of Satan himself. Or... um, Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, Jesus made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. This is God's way. He brings about the greatest victory in the most surprising way. That's what he did in Egypt, isn't it? Where you just had this ragtag bunch of slaves, but... Pharaoh, the most powerful man on the planet, is utterly humbled, utterly powerless, and not a sword is raised in opposition to him. And that is what we see in the death of Jesus, the great victory in the most unlikely moment of Jesus' death on the cross. What looks like the greatest humiliation is in fact in God's purposes, the great moment of victory. You know, Tolkien, who wrote The Lord of the Rings, he believed these things and they are written into the fabric of his story in The Lord of the Rings. Uh, And it's captured at the climax of um, The Lord of the Rings. So just bear with me, it won't be long. Uh, But at the climax, you've got the whole thing has been the armies of evil, the armies of Sauron have been gathering and they are fierce and they are overwhelming. 
And yet victory will come in the most surprising way. A little hobbit. Uh, at this point, he's too exhausted, too battered and bloody to make the final part of the journey. And so he's carried by his friend. But he goes up Mount Doom and he will cast the ring of power into the furnace. And just when everyone else thinks all the action is somewhere else, you know, on the battlefield, that, that action of that little insignificant hobbit will be the catalyst for victory uh, over the forces of evil. That is a picture of what Jesus achieved for us on the cross. When Jesus died, it didn't look like it. It didn't look spectacular. It looked embarrassing, shameful, utterly humiliated. And yet, he died as the perfect sacrificial lamb. God had placed on him the sin of the world. And as we trust in Jesus, so we are forgiven because he has taken our sin in his body on the cross. And so Satan, the great accuser, has been robbed of his power because what can he accuse us of? You know, he can come against me and say, David, I know what you did. And I can say, yes, and I know what I did, and God knows what I did, but it has been forgiven. And so Satan may come and accuse, but I hold on to the promises of God. And I say, yes, but it is forgiven. And God remembers my sin no more. And all Satan can do now is lie and deceive and tempt. But he has no valid accusation. He will, he will throw his slanderous insults at me. But Jesus has won the victory. He's paid for my sin. Uh, he achieves victory through his death on the cross. And for all of you who would like to celebrate that victory of Jesus, we're going to have a small meal, a kind of a mini Passover together, where we will take bread and we will take some uh, juice and we will remember the victory and the rescue that Jesus brings uh, by his death. But before we get there, I just, want, I just want to point out how the disciples in this chapter are caught up in this battle. So this is heading three, Satan and the disciples. So Jesus, in chapter 22, verse 20, he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. What are the next words that come out of Jesus' mouth? He says, But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. One of the disciples has given in to Satan completely. He is now on Satan's team, and that is Judas. And what a tragedy that this man who, who was an insider in all that Jesus said and did 
has betrayed Jesus and crossed over to the side of Satan. The other disciples get caught up in a dispute over who is going to be the greatest. Just an extraordinary thing, isn't it? As Jesus is talking about the sufferings to come and the glory to follow, it's like they are believing the lies of Satan. They're believing they can have the glory without the suffering. Uh, They can have uh, the the crown without the cross. Uh, And so they're being tempted by Satan's lies. Jesus will model to them the values of the kingdom, which is suffering now, glory to follow, servitude now, greatness to come. And I just want to ask, which value system has your heart been captured by? Um, Satan will offer you glory and greatness, but you can leave aside suffering and servitude. But here's a lies. Uh, there's no future in what Satan offers. But Jesus calls on us to imitate him, to walk the path of the cross and to have our hearts set on the joy uh, that will come, the joy to follow. And finally, Jesus focuses on Simon Peter, and he says, verse 31, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. Uh, This is a time of testing that will come on all of the disciples. But I have asked, I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Jesus knows that Satan will put them all to the test. He knows that Simon will be put to the test. He'll have an opportunity to stand with Jesus. But three times he will deny ever knowing Jesus. But even before it all happens, Jesus is assuring Peter that he will restore him and strengthen him to boldly testify and to rally and empower the others. Now, brothers and sisters, this same supernatural battle continues today. Your enemy, the devil, this is 1 Peter 5, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him. James 4, resist the devil and he will flee from you because Jesus has won the victory over him. Now, Jesus has won the victory, but we are still called upon to be on our guard, to not be complacent, to not be oblivious to this bigger context, this bigger war that we're part of. We're called upon... To resist the temptation of lies, the temptation to anger, the temptation of division and self-centeredness. And those things are played out in the ordinary, everyday lives, in our home, in our church, in our workplace. Just the temptations of Satan, the lies, anger, division, self-centeredness, gossip, whatever it is. And we're called upon to resist those temptations And we're called upon not to believe the lies, the deception of Satan. 
When, when Satan comes along and accuses us, we're called upon, like we sang in that song, I am a child of God. And Satan, you cannot rob me of that right because Jesus, by his death on the cross, won that privilege for me. And I believe in his power, not your lies. That's what we say to Satan. Because Satan wants nothing more than to rob us of the confidence that should rightly be ours through the Lord Jesus. So in a moment, I'm going to invite you all to share the Lord's Supper. Uh, Harry, why don't you come on up without your kids uh, this time, Harry? Um, And uh, yeah, so just as Jesus ate and drank wine with his disciples on the night before he died, so we're going to eat bread uh, and drink from the cup together in just a little while in remembrance of Jesus. Um, But before we do, Harry's just going to play some music and I want to invite you to pray a a prayer in your own heart Uh, and just use these three words, sorry, thank you, please. Acknowledge your sin, take a moment to do that because sometimes we even hide from our own sin but Jesus has paid for it all and so we can now bring it all before God and say thank you to God for the Lord Jesus and ask his forgiveness and his strengthening. Uh, Why don't you take a moment in prayer? Jesus is your champion, if you know him as your saviour and king, I'd love to invite you to come and take part in this symbolic meal. Uh, And I just want to encourage us, if we just start with, you know, the first five or so rows, you'll note just in an orderly way, you can make your way to one of the four tables uh, around the room. And if you could uh, get a cup and some bread. There's gluten-free option because we want everyone. This is a, a, a meal of all of God's people to be united in. Uh, and so there's gluten-free there, and you could ask one of the table of assistants if you're struggling to find that. Uh, so why don't you go and get a cup 
some bread and bring it back to your seats because we'll eat and drink together in just a moment. Let me uh, remind you of the prophecy of Isaiah 700 years before the coming of Jesus. He said, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed we all like sheep have gone astray each one of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all as we've heard on the night before Jesus died he took bread and he broke the bread and he gave it to his disciples and he said this is my body given for you do this in remembrance of me. And so in a moment, we'll eat, remembering Jesus' body given for us. And after the supper, Jesus took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for you and for many. So let's eat and drink in remembrance of our champion, the Lord Jesus.
pray. Oh God, our Father, you are the rightful ruler of our world. We're sorry for the times we've ignored you, run our lives our own way, for the times we've failed to trust, failed to honour you. Father, we're sorry for the times we have believed the lies of Satan and given him to his temptations rather than trusting in your word and your commands. Father, we want to thank you so much for sending your son, our champion. Thank you that he laid down his life as the perfect sacrificial lamb. Please forgive us all our sin. Thank you that Jesus has defeated our enemy, Satan. That he's risen in victory. He now seats at your right hand. And Father, thank you that nothing now can separate us from the love of Jesus. Not even Satan and his lies can separate us. Please help us to follow our King, to resist Satan's schemes and believe your promises until that day when Jesus comes again. We pray these things in his name, in the Lord Jesus' name. Amen.